Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 294, Thursday, May the 11th, 2023. Made a bit of a stuff up last time, I think, Mark, I had the um, episode numbers incorrect and a few episodes before that, I think, by the sound of things. So I think we're on trap here, track here. It is episode 294, Mark, and I hope you're saving up some good things for episode 300. I can't believe we're approaching 300. That's phenomenal. How have you been, Brendan? I've been well, Mark. I've been better, but I've been well, and I am okay. <laughs> I'm okay. Um, typical wintry Melbourne at the moment here. So uh, we had hail, Mark, um, hail a um, couple of days ago. So cold enough to turn the rain to hail, stones, and, yeah, it's been a bit chilly, um, probably a tad, tad cooler than up your way, Mark, up north. Um, I think our top on one of the days was 15 degrees Celsius, Mark. (laughs) The amazing thing to me about the weather here is that it's always about 30, like it sometimes gets to 33, sometimes down to, well, the coldest it's been has been 26. In the dry season, apparently it does get down to 18, 19 late at night. Pretty much all the rest of the time, it's around thirty. Ideal, <sighs> ideal environment for reptiles, Brendan. Yes, I can imagine, and for and for Mark and taking and photos. for Mark. Yes. Now you have a little um, story. I to do. Tell I me. do. I am. Um, I went to pick up uh, one of the other caretakers. I went to pick up Steve and give him a lift in the Land Cruiser, and we have a dog box. Anyway, we. There's only two seats in the front. It's a sing, you know, single cab. Um, and so Steve chucked his uh, bags into the dog box um, and he didn't clip the lock. So when I was driving him back to town along the dirt road, um, the door popped open. It's like, you know, it swings up like a, a wing. Yes, I have seen this. And... It and got then I smashed off it didn't against the tree, <laughs> and I've torn it off. Thank goodness, um, it all the damage was rest- like in some situations. This can deform the shape of the dog box, and you, you know. Now, why, you, let me interrupt you. Why do they call it a dog box? Because you put your dog in well, there, or not? I've never put a dog. In. I, I assume that's the original. You know, a cage on the tray. Uh, is the original dog box. These are now boxes. So your sealed. wife, Kate, Kate, hasn't put you in the dog box oh, at all? It's gone close a couple of times. <laughs> and, and thank goodness I knocked the door off because any other sort of accident with the vehicle, I would have been you locked in. You couldn't get out, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you did a bit of panel beating, did you? You, um, you did a bit I of MacGy- MacGyvering. I'm very, very, um, very impressed um, that, you've, that you attempted that. How did it go? Not very well. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I've taken it off, did my MacGyvering, and now I've had to ship it to Cairns to a uh, a, uh, a professional. Brendan. The panel or the whole 
try the panel. No, just the again. panel. Just the door. Yes. Thank goodness it was the damage was restricted to the door. Um, yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Ah, oh. Fun and games. Well, if that could have been the, worse, could have been much worse. The worst of your troubles, Mark. That's right. Um, You're exactly right. It ain't anything much. Um, yes. Well, nothing too dramatic here, Mark. And while I remember, um, just a couple of bits of housekeeping, vetgurus at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. We're going to cover a couple of the emails on our back list today, Mark. We'll rip through them in a sec. And also go to our vets, web, website, vetgurus.com. Have a poke around there. Look at the previous episodes. And, yeah, we'll have to think about some special prizes or something, Mark, for this episode number 300 that's coming up. Previously, for those of you who haven't listened to our 100th or our 200th episode, we have had um, prizes and typically they're what a, a, um, a, a magnificent photograph by Mark um, that he posts. And um, I, I don't, did you sign them, Mark? Did you sign them at all? I don't, no, you I, didn't. I don't think I did. <clears throat> I think you need to for your next lot um, because they are getting more and more spectacular. So I expect that that will be part of our prize pack this 300th episode in a few episodes from now. So with that bit of housekeeping, Mark, I think, because we've got a bit to get through this this week, um, I think we should chat about what um, our international US correspondent has sent another email that we just could not ignore. Nick, thank you very much. Um, and he made some comments on our podcast about uh, bloating rabbits mark um some very good comments there and one of the one of the thoughts he has he's he's had very good success mark um we briefly mentioned off air uh, with decompression of these rabbits mark and i'm not surprised he's probably just a lot better vet than you and i (laughs) so so well done nick and i'd like to uh, yes fire another email back to us nick and just give us an idea on what sort of gauge tube you are using for that decompression and whether there's any tips or tricks with that um do you put extra holes in it um yeah what what, what's what's your method with the decompression there and uh you also sent a link mark to a a very interesting um paper do you want to um chat about that it's it is a very interesting paper uh um the title is the clinico pathological and radiographic indicators for orogastric decompression in rabbits presenting with intestinal obstruction at a referral hospital um, and uh, and pleasingly um, the maybe we didn't make it as abundantly clear as the article but they they it looks to me like they're using the same sort of indices um, that is glucose sodium and uh, radiographic appearance to be guided on the requirement of intervention um and so yeah i think I, I am interested in the techniques that allow more successful orogastric uh, uh, intubation um allowing that fluid and gas to come out um because that will definitely that decompression will definitely buy your time so that you can manage more of these medically i reckon yes and they in that, that very good descriptive article there mark um, they were using a lubricated 14 gauge french four millimeter tube red rubber catheter mark to pass um, into the stomach there for their decompression in that and i think nick mentioned that 
one of the authors of this or the main author of this paper was um, one of his his my mentor so um, very interesting article and we'll link to that at our website mark so yes bloat and rabbits it's all we always get lots of um lots of um discussion on it don't we it's oh uh, yeah it's, it's, lots it's a of, hot topic hot lots of topic feedback. and you got some feedback as well from yeah i've just got a brief one from martin that um who, who i gave a shout out to those first year um, bachelor of veterinary nursing um, students at melbourne polytechnic here and uh mark martin mark um martin mark mark <laughs> martin um, glad uh, you've met each other um mentions that um, he's really enjoying the podcast. Thank you very much. And a quick note about an article that he mentioned, which um, we've, again, we've had a little chat before we went to air, uh, a study, uh, impact of methods and duration of surgical hand scrub on bacterial count, a randomised control, controlled study. Uh, and it was aiming to compare the effectiveness of surgical hand scrub duration and methods by analysing their effect on bacterial count, Mark. And interestingly enough, um, it indicated that um, using a brush hand brush mark, the conclusion was the study found that brushing during surgical hand scrub increased increase the number of bacteria on the hand mark besides besides this is their conclusion besides comma one minute surgical hand scrub was equally effective as two minute surgical scrub to reduce the number of bacteria on the hand so the the main finding was mark that brushing actually increases the number of bacteria on the hand mark so what's your thoughts on that i'd be really interested to understand i assume the brushing is not going to make more bacteria. The bacteria are more yeah. likely to be dislodged from, like, interstices in the epithelium, I imagine. And the more thoroughly you scrub, um, the more and the more bacteria there are in those layers of dead cells, then obviously the, the more fragile their attachment to the body and the more likely they are to be removed and allowed to be counted in you know some system of bacterial count um yeah I'd, it, it's a single study and i don't know that i'd be giving up scrubbing surgical scrubs before surgery just yet but yeah. um, well but I, it's I, interesting I, I, yeah, it is. I must admit, I don't do the traditional sort of surgical scrub these days, Mark. I do the little bit of a, a, a general sort of soapy scrub first, and then I use the hand rub, Mark. Um, I use the, what's it called? Skin Man, I think, the one that we use here, which is a sort of um, alcohol um, um, solution, rub solution that you use instead of a scrub um, okay. and um, instead of the, you know, the traditional sort of chlorhexidine type scrubs. And I've found that fantastic and i think a lot of the a lot of the human surgeons use that um, hand rub these days instead of that you know nail and brush uh, as well mark so yeah although we can both remember back in the day mark when now you know some of our mentors and 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 teachers would uh um, be dead against using gloves um, do you remember that, Mark? With some, yes, with some of the vets that I've worked with, and I've even had some that were. Actually, I remember one one of the places <laughs> I I worked at part time. Um, his, I'll say his, um, and it was oh, it's narrowed um, it down already. Yes, <laughs> but be careful. His surgical scrub technique was um, he would use a little bit of just normal soap, 
um, up into a lather. Yep. Um, rinse it off. And then um, to do the final prep for surgery, Mark, he'd get a bit of um, the Savlon um, soap um, and that would be his final, um, you know, sterile bit. And he'd use a bit of that sort of um, soap as well. Um, and that was it. That was his scrub um, solution. None, none of this um, actual surgical scrub stuff and or, 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 or scrubbing brushes, yeah. Uh, so there you go that was the old days um and i've certainly worked with a um or know at least one one vet who would uh not like to wear the gloves because they they thought that um, it interfered with their um tactile sensors that they couldn't you know manage to manipulate the the, the tissues and organs um, properly with, without gloves on. So that's their, their, their reasoning behind not, not putting gloves on after scrubbing. So. It, it's, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I appreciate that um, having the gloves on does steal some of the tactile sensitivity, but I just think you've got to adapt. You've got to learn. You've got to be flexible. Yes, and... You don't want those bacteria in there, Mark. So <laughs> wear those Not gloves. Wear those gloves. So there you go. Thank you, Martin, um, for that, and f- Nick um, on your on your emails there. And yeah, keep the emails coming. We'll pick out a few um, potentially every every week or three or four um, to have a bit of a chat about. Um, we love so hearing from we love, our yep, yeah. vetgurus at gmail.com. Send them in. Send them in. The, Brendan, the, my my news article. Comes yes. as no surprise. Um, the topic is uh, Goffins, cockatoos are able to use a tool set to complete tasks. And I love, whenever we look at these articles, I love the way that people set up, scientists set up experiments to test particular aspects of the way that um, animals do things. And in this instance, uh, the scientists set up an experiment where they had a very, very tasty seeds i think they were hmm, i don't know um, maybe cashews cashews i would be worked up about getting the cashews and so um they had a double layer as it were the birds had first of all to uh, burst a membrane and then use a second different shape tool different length tool to get the cashew out of the uh, little box it was in and it didn't take long for the birds to learn how to do that. More importantly, it didn't take long for them to, um, when the tools were put on a different table, the birds would grab the two tools that they need, that they're likely to need for the job, fly over to the table, then use, sometimes the experimenters would uh, seal the cashew in only one level of, uh, you know, so only one tool was needed but the birds would collect their little set of tools that they might need for the job. And this perception that the birds could recognise that they may need um, a variety of tools led the um, experimenters to try and sell them a tool belt so they could carry their tools around. Um, no, no, it's fascinating, isn't it, Brennan? That they're, but it's not that fascinating. I, and the researchers suggest that... Um, the crows, the New Caledonian crows, who've long been hailed as expert tool users, um, that then are not alone amongst birds and the goffin's cockatoo ability to 
plan ahead and know that they are going to need several tools is on a level the same as that. But I've got to say to you, Brendan, that's no surprise to me that, um, that a, and I don't think Goffin's cockatoo would be alone amongst the cockatoos in doing stuff like that. Um, I reckon our, our own cockatoos here in Australia closely related to those Goffin's cockatoos would, uh, if we set up experiments, they would quickly do the same thing. Yes, I I agree with you as far as the amazing little contraptions and and um, puzzles that the that they must spend a bit of time trying to work out. What are we going to do to you know test these birds? Let's have a little membrane they have to pop and then touch this lever and out pops the cashew. So yes, yeah, very interesting, Mark. And um, are they going to take over the world, Mark? These are they going to be? Well, they already are sentient, yeah. aren't they? Are they aren't these, these birds, yes. My mine is a big wombat, Mark. My news story: paleontologists have discovered the intact remains of a species of ancient giant wombat, Mark Ramsey Magna, has been found in a cave near Rockhampton, which is in central Queensland, Mark, dated eighty thousand years ago. They're big, Mark. These are big wombats, aren't they? And for oh, those yeah, of you not nice. from Australia, um, wombats can get pretty big. And I've had some dealings with wombats, both in the wild and in in wildlife parks. And I love I love a good wombat, but those big males can get up to you know thirty or forty kilograms, can't they? The current wombats that yeah. we see, but this one um, weigh they think weighed in at around a hundred kilograms, Mark. One hundred kilograms. Now that is a giant wombat. And the thing about you'll know, Brendan, having worked with them, uh, the wombats being herbivores, they have the chisel-like teeth. And my experience has been the wombats are very, very good at using the chisel-like teeth as knives. And so, despite the fact that they're herbivorous animals, they can still give you a very, very nasty bite. And a hundred kilo. Yes. Especially when they charge at you, Mark. Um, a hundred kilo wombat is going to make a yeah, nice slash. Yeah, it's uh, they um, call you bluff, and if that happens, I <laughs> jump out of the way if you're doing that. And those those um, claws of them aren't aren't particularly soft as well. So yes, so yeah, just a, a little um, that they, they not, don't know exactly how, why or or when the species became extinct, Mark. Um, but they're they're hoping to discover some more of these. Um, more of these bones, Mark, to help um, piece the puzzle together. So, yeah, why discovering a true giant wombat fossil is a big deal is the article, and we'll link to that at vetgurus.com for this week's episode, Mark. So I think we'll jump into our um, bit of a summary I thought we'd do this week, Mark, um, just a very simple summary of... Ready? I should get the uh, the little drums Drum going here, Mark. <laughs> of caesareans in guinea pigs. Um, I think you um, suggested we have this as a, as a title there because, yeah, I mean, my summary of it is um, it's rare that we have to do a caesarean on a guinea pig. And funnily enough, Mark, even though you put this on the agenda, I did see a guinea pig fairly recently, about three or four weeks ago, that was going along quite nicely with its um, pregnancy. Um, we... Um, we're monitoring it and uh, it did the typical thing that um, when our clinic was closed on a weekend or a public wow. holiday, 
it uh, decided to have a bit of dystopia happening there. So it did go to one of the other exotic clinics here in Melbourne who did a fantastic job. And uh, they did a caesarean on it, Mark, and, and mum and the little pups are doing fantastically. So I must admit the number of caesareans I've done in guinea pigs um, is certainly less than I can count on one full hand. Um, but I think the interesting, the, one of the reasons I raised it as a potential topic for us to talk about is that it very often is the case that we get asked about it because of the fear of um, primiparous yes. guinea pigs giving birth late in life. Um, and, you know, there's the, I don't know what the current story is, but isn't, is it if they haven't given birth in the first 12 months of their life, the, the pelvic symphysis will fuse and then they can't expand and you've got to do a cesarean to get them out look and i think as you said the actual number of times there's a genuine dystopia and you have to do something in a guinea pig is low it's yes. not very common it's rare it's a rare condition so yeah and yes all the all the old textbooks and that do mention that yeah if, if the guinea pig isn't bred within that first six to twelve months but that yeah you high chance you might need to do a cesarean but yeah i've certainly found the same as you mark and that it's very unlikely and they ju you just let them do their thing um and guinea pigs are very good at popping out guinea pigs um and one of the other um fascinating or, or difficult things is to determine when they're about to pop those guinea pigs out and if it is becoming an issue because that gestation period of them is a wide range mark it's at 50 uh, what 59 or 72 days or so yeah, so it's a yeah. much broader range than other species there so you cannot say and look it's going to happen tomorrow type thing and i just normally say to the clients look if examine the guinea pig um have a little palpation or check of the pups in, uh, the fetuses there and, and say look she seems quite comfortable she's not straining um let's just hang in there keep monitoring I think, and that's exactly you know exactly the same as what I would tell them. I think the the other thing too is that um, that six to twelve months, and then the symphysis fuses. That's not a guilt edged thing either. That I've seen several guinea pigs that have uh, had their first litter at um, twenty four, even older, yep. twenty four months or older, and and the symphysis softens up and. The estrogen, the reproductive hormones, they do their work and, and in a majority they will open up. And yeah, so it's a great point, Mark. So it, I think it's something that we, you know, bear in mind the, the gestation period, bear in mind the fact that we might have problems if it is a guinea pig that has not had youngsters before and then it is over over one or two or three years of age that we might increase it. But um, but. I think you need to base it on what's happening with the an, the animal in front of you, and if it seems comfortable, it, and we, I apply the same sort of guidelines that I would for any species that's um, about to give birth. If it is straining um, and it's straining continuously for more than um, a, a reasonable amount of time, then then we start worrying with the mark or they're exhausting themselves with it, but. Luckily enough, guinea pigs um, tip, uh, usually spit out those little piggies um, very well. But if they don't, Mark, and that's the other the other fear that people have, what if we do have to do a caesarean on a guinea pig? Um, and again, you'll read some of the 
old textbooks and, and, and journals or whatever will be saying that it's a very poor prognosis for them. Um, I've found the opposite, Mark. Yeah, I agree with you. The ones that you, and, and, I, and I don't know whether it's my technique, but my, my theory with these are, and you love a theory, don't you, Mark, is to get in there, get the piggies out and, and get out um, like any other species, you know, the, uh, being prompt and not stuffing around, um, you know, um, getting fluids into it, stabilising it, putting your, you know, um, heating pads on them and all that. Just, I reckon just... you've hit the nail on the head there in that um, I reckon the large size of the offspring, um, their precocious sort of size, really plays around with temperature and if you're not fastidious with the, the bear hugger and the, the recirculating uh, water, the heating of the fluids, um, you can easily get a, a chilled mother guinea pig, even if you do everything else right. Um, and if you go a little bit slow with the surgery, then that, um, that cooling is even more exaggerated. And that's one of the factors in my experience that really is a poor prognostic indicator. Yep. And you mentioned the bit about the precocious. They're amazing, those little pups, aren't they? They, yeah. they? And I've got a picture of a couple that I took out by a cesarean and they're, they're literally eating sloppy food two hours later um, yeah. and, and mum's there chewing away on food. And guinea pigs are amazing with any surgery, even the dental surgery. You know, they're usually eating five minutes after you've turned off the anaesthetic with them there. And that's a, a really good point, Brendan, that, um, that if they are not, then you need to be aggressive with those supplementary feeds. We use the, the uh, Oxbow Critical Care um, and if and it can quickly spiral out of control into gastrointestinal pain and cramping and and uh, fluid loss and changes uh, uh, electrolyte imbalances. So if that because a normal guinea pig will, as you say, um, literally wake up and start nibbling something. Um, if they don't do that, you need to be very aggressive with those supplementary feeds. Yep, exactly. So. I think our summary is, Mark, um, look at what's different and what's the same with, with caesareans and guinea pigs. What's different is um, that that um, very sort of very wide margin of, of um, yeah, um, gestation period with them, um, the thoughts about the possibility of that um, pelvic symphysis. And, and, and for those who don't, don't realise, yeah, that pelvic symphysis can can separate um, in a guinea pig the two sides of the pelvis up to several millimetres or five five millimetres or even more in some of them, Mark. And, yeah. And, and you can often um, give that as a good indication of, of she's not far off the next couple of days or so or, or tonight or whatever um, of of popping them out by popping your finger there and you can feel that um, um, gap gap there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just letting them do the thing, making sure they got been a, making like any animal, making sure they got plenty of nesting material. I think it's a really important one, Mark. If they, yep. they've got nowhere to, to pop them out and, and feel safe, that then they might ha hold on to them a bit. Um, and, and yes, don't be afraid of doing a caesarean if you, if it's indicated with them, if, if you do have that unusual or rare case of a caesarean being required in a guinea pig, um, but be be organised. Um, yeah. This organized. is where I fail. <laughs> <laughs> because no. you're exactly right. Be organised and be quick. Just don't, you know, you don't, it's not, um, you don't have to be manically quick. You just have to be prompt and in and out as quickly as you can be. And I think that's where you may be at a disadvantage if you are in a 
like a university type situation there, Mark, because um, at the time that you know the the whole process of getting that surgical suite and having students around, etc., it, it, it's it's um, it's a it's a negative for something like this. Um, yeah. So anyway, anybody got any uh, have any have any um, interesting point pointers about um, guinea right. pig cesarean? Send us an Tips email. Tips or interesting Victor. experiences about guinea pig caesars. Yes, and. Um, Fire them in via email and uh, we'll um, have a look at them, reply to you. And if we haven't replied to you via email, we may shout out about your email on our podcast. And I think with that, Mark, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.